All right, hey, yeah, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, hey, welcome to the exchange. So glad you guys are with us this morning. My name is Josiah. Um, we just, we're just glad you're here, and I'd love to meet you after Say What's Up if this is your first time. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So if you would, turn to Mark 13, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. So Mark chapter 13, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one, uh, but we'd love for you just to follow along and be a part of this with us. Uh, let me kind of review something really quick. Um, because I don't always slow down enough to celebrate uh, what God's been doing, but last week we had our second baptism as a church, and it was a really special time. We went down to Deerfield Beach, just north of the pier, and we saw five people get baptized uh, last Sunday. And so, yeah, you can <laughs> give up for Jesus. Um, honestly, I don't want to take these sort of things for granted. Um, I know for, for some of the people here, that was you, so congratulations. Um, but I know that many people have been praying for the people here for a long time. And just to see people publicly identify with Jesus through baptism is a, such a sweet thing. Uh, we're, we take communion to remember Jesus. We get baptized to, be, to identify with Jesus. And uh, that was a really sweet time last Sunday. So uh, again, congratulations to everyone who got baptized. And so cool, such a sweet time. And so many cool stories, I think, just came from that. So I just want to celebrate that with you guys. Uh, hey, we're in Mark chapter 13. And uh, let me kind of explain and catch you up to speed as we're in the Gospel of Mark, because this might be your first time, and what a weekend you chose as we go through the whole chapter of Mark 13. Uh, but let me kind of catch you up to speed. So the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. It's written by a guy named John Mark, uh, who was actually discipled by a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter spent time with Mark, invested in him, and it's believed that the Gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. Now, we are in Mark 13, so we're going to look at the whole chapter today. A little unique for us, and I think you can handle it. This is going to be probably more of a teaching in the sense of like we're going to go through this and try to understand what is Jesus saying here. So let me kind of explain and again catch up to the speed, the context. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Mark chapter 11 through 16 focuses, a third of the book focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. It's huge. That's very significant. And we just saw Jesus come into Jerusalem on a donkey, being worshipped as the Messiah. They're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. We then see Jesus in the temple. We saw this last week. He's in the temple being asked just a brain of questions, asking about the resurrection, about politics, all these questions. And if you remember last week, Jesus gave such profound and significant answers. It says that no one dared question him. Like after all the questions, it's like, I have no more questions. Do you? No, no. And then Jesus had a question for them. And so we ended last week finishing up Mark 12, where Jesus was in the temple, and now Jesus is going to be leaving the temple here in Mark 13. He's going to leave the temple, say something about the temple. The disciples are very confused. He goes to the Mount of Olives and gives the longest teaching we have based off of a question. So let me explain this. This is what we call the Olivet Discourse. You can read Mark 13. It's also in Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21. The disciples ask Jesus a question, and this is the longest answer we have from Jesus in the, in the New Testament. It's, it's a sermon, it's a teaching based off a question from the disciples. The longest teaching we have. And it's basically going to be about the destruction of the Jewish temple and the coming of Jesus. Now, this is an interesting chapter. And I feel like I've studied this chapter a lot of my life, and I'll explain why, uh, because where I grew up and how I grew up. But um, this is an interesting chapter that's debated, de debated upon, talked about a lot. And here's what I just want to do is just slow down. I'm going to do my best to teach through this, walk through this. But my hope is this morning we can talk about the second coming of Jesus. And rather than being like a weird, strange thing or all the different ideas we might have about it, that we could first of all just enjoy it. 
Just enjoy this idea. Enjoy the teaching. Enjoy the truth that Jesus is coming again. That Jesus is coming back for us. That Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom on earth. And I want to talk about that. Because as soon as I say that, I know there's a lot of controversy, a lot of questions, a lot of maybe misunderstanding, frustration. And so I want to do my best to walk through this chapter. And this is what we would just call, this is like a teaching on eschatology, a study of end times, but not just end times. Probably the best way to define eschatology is the study of end times, death, judgment, the destiny of the soul, Jesus' coming kingdom. the The end. So that could be judgment. That could be a second coming. That could be the idea of the new heavens, new earth, new creation, the recreation, really. And so we're going to look at this more in depth. And this has been interesting. This interests Christians and non-Christians alike. And this probably just frustrates some people as well. And so I want to talk through those things. I want to walk through those things. Um, let me just say this too. God has done a lot in my heart when it comes to these type of passages of Scripture. I think that over the years I was probably more closed-handed when it came to my view of end times, and God's really kind of given me more of an open hand. This is not one of those things where if you have a different end time view than us or me or someone else, that you're our enemy. (laughs) Not by any means. I've seen too many fights over this. I've seen too many conflicts over this. I've seen too many issues over this. Uh, This is something that to me, it's like I've kind of go, I have my convictions, but you know what? There's a lot of other views when it comes to end times. They have really good arguments, and they have some missing elements, and we have some good arguments, and we have some missing elements. I want to be truthful with that, and I want to be open with that, and I don't want to become dogmatic on something that's really secondary, but we can, we can, and across all denominations agree upon this idea that Jesus is coming back. The details of how, of when, of what it will be like might differ, but we believe that Jesus is coming back, and that's something we celebrate. Amen? And so I want to do my best to, like, approach this, because, again, I know this kind of, for me, I spent, and I'll I'll explain, but I spent a long time around this kind of culture, and God's had to really loosen my heart and perspective on some of these things, and just enjoy the truth and enjoy the fact that Jesus is coming again. So, as we talk about end times, uh, as we look at this more in depth, I want to see, there's also a practical side to this. There are 19 imperatives, 19 commands in this section, in verse 5 through 37, where Jesus is like, stay awake, be alert, watch, you know, beware, don't be deceived. There's constantly these commands or imperatives, and we probably should focus on that as well. Not just like the details, but what, what is he saying? So what we're going to see is Jesus is actually given a prophecy, a near prophecy, a short-term prophecy about the destruction of the temple, and that is so significant. That, that rocked the disciples' world. That Judaism, as they know it, will forever be changed from Jesus' prophecy. And then we're going to see also there seems to be a long-term uh, prophecy in this speaking of his coming. So there's like a near event and a far event. And this is where the verses, people get confused, like what is speaking of the temple? What's speaking of a second coming? And I'm going to do my best to just frustrate all of you. All right. Um, so <laughs> uh, before, before we read, we're not going to read all right now. We're just going to pray over this right now. Um, but again, my hope is that we just become a church regardless of your take on this or your definition of this is that we just long to be with Jesus. We long to see Jesus' kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Can we agree upon that? Can we start there? All right, let's pray, and then we'll read through this a little bit and talk more in depth. Father, we just, um, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this teaching. God, when we study church history, it's just caused so many questions and thoughts. But Lord, let us see your heart in this. Let us be alert. Let us stay awake. Let us be aware God, let us be that faithful servant who is looking for you. God, let us not despise this section or different views. God, I just pray for myself and everyone. Um, God, that we'd have an open heart and open mind to hear from you, that you would speak, and God, that your spirit would do what it is you want to accomplish in us, God. I, I believe there's so much more than just an, inf- just an interesting teaching on end times. It's, it's not that. 
Jesus, I ask that you would um, just make us more aware of you through this. Make us more aware of your presence. Make us more aware of just this hope throughout the Old and New Testament of God, your kingdom coming. Of just you establishing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We just ask, God, that you would just align our hearts with that. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. There's probably no other topic, as I mentioned, that has caused more confusion, frustration, misunderstanding than the idea of Jesus' second coming. Now, I do want to explain something because I think it's important to know our backgrounds. We've got to be honest with our backgrounds. A lot of us grew up in certain environments or churches or cultures or maybe you've never heard of the second coming of Jesus. Maybe this is all brand new to you. Uh, I have to be honest with where I came from and, and how maybe that's affected my view of this. So I grew up in a, a church in California called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Uh, that was the first Calvary Chapel started by a guy named Chuck Smith. Um, I love Chuck Smith, appreciate the guy's life, spent a year and a half with him, meeting with him every Friday, going through the Bible. Life-changing. Love the guy. And there's a big emphasis where I grew up on end times, an extremely big emphasis. I probably knew more about end times and end times theology than I did about salvation, what we'd call soteriology. And there's probably a problem with that. And I think that, you're going to just say there's not a problem with that. I think that I grew up in a culture, I'll be honest, where uh, it kind of got weird. People have developed timelines. There's books being passed around. The woman rides the beast in Revelation. You got to read the story. <laughs> like, it just got a little strange. Every year, every New Year's Eve, we had an end time prophecy. Like, on New Year's Eve, we'd be like, okay, let's an update on end times. Maybe you've been to some of those. I grew up going to this my whole life. Ezekiel 38, the battle of Gog and Magog. And like, some of you are like, what are you talking about? It's okay. Don't worry. Um, but I grew up around that a lot. And when you're a young kid hearing these messages, I feel like every chapel, every sermon was like, end times, be ready. Jesus is coming back. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I can't tell you how that affected an 11 year old or 12 year old, right? You wake up in the morning, like, ah, oh, go downstairs, like, where's my parents? <laughs> Jesus, can't, I missed it. I knew they said this would happen. I, I, oh, there's almost like, even within my friend group, like a, a recovery ministry we have about end times, like, we got to talk. Like, this is, this, this is hard. You know, I remember coming home from like high school and I'd walk in my living room and the TV's on and the car's in the driveway. And I'm like, where's my family? And they're in the backyard. I'm like, oh my gosh, don't do that to me. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've walked through that. Again, it did get to a place where it's a little unhealthy, where I'd say there's books being passed, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Came Back in 1988. I mean, these are real books, real things. People on street corners predicting the end times, predicting a certain date and time. And I can't necessarily say this came from leadership, but I would say there was a culture that I grew up around it where there's such an emphasis on it, it honestly affected, I think, how I live day to day. Probably affected my view of, of just even salvation. And God over the years has had to kind of soften my heart when it comes to this, this teaching of end times. You know, when, I'm, when I became a, a teenager and started reading books on the four views of the millennium and different views and different perspectives, and I'd say it used to, like, like kind of like rile me up a little bit. Like, I can't believe they have a different view than us. How dare they? And I grew up, we grew up in a, and I'm not going to get into all the definitions, but let me just say this, by no means will this be an exhaustive message on eschatology that is not possible to do this in one sermon. So it's not going to be that by any means. Uh, but I grew up in a culture where it's like a pre-millennial, pre-trib culture. And if you weren't that, that was dangerous. And that's what was not healthy where I couldn't appreciate other views of Jesus coming, where I couldn't appreciate people just believing that Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom immediately. And God had to do a lot of softening in my heart towards other perspectives and listen. And guys, can I tell you, please just listen to other people's perspectives and thoughts and comments and while well, they're pre-wrath or they're post-trib or they're, and there's a lot of different perspectives. And what I've had to come to the conclusion with is what do we all agree upon? What do we all agree upon? The fact that Jesus is coming back. Method, details, timing, 
I might have certain convictions, but I've had to be God, give me more of an open-handed and open heart to this. Amen? Do you guys get what I'm describing? Again, because when I grew up around this a lot, it became so unhealthy. Even still, it's just funny, just a side note, whenever I go back to California and, you know, get together with my friends and, you know, because they're in their 30s and, you know, it's like I'm a pastor in Florida and so, like, they still have questions about end times. And it's funny, we kind of have, like, a rehab. Like, a, we really have, like, a this discussion, like, man, I, like, there's a joke on my wedding day that as soon as I said I do, that Jesus would come back and I wouldn't have my honeymoon, right? Like, that was, like, a real thing. And you might have felt that. <laughs> you might have thought that. And it really, what it did again was it didn't create this longing for Jesus. Maybe it almost created some sort of despise. It's not like, th- it wasn't creating this, and it had, I had to do this, go, God, I just want to long to be with you. A lot had to shift and change. So here's what I'm trying to say. I think there's two errors many times in the church when it comes to the end times, and that is this. There might be an overemphasis. This is all you talk about. Every sermon gets back to this. And listen, a lot of the Bible is about the second coming. One out of every 13 verses in the New Testament is a reference to his coming. That's a lot. That's a good percentage. So we should talk about this. But there might be an overemphasis, or we just want to dismiss it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want people to talk. I don't want people to think about me. Like Nicolas Cage has kind of maybe ruined certain views of end times or this movie or this book. And it's like, we don't want to be associated with that. And I get that. I really get that. And I get that there's some frustration in this. But let me just, can I just say something? For the past couple thousand years, Christians in general, we've at least had this called the memorial acclamation. And the memorial, the memorial acclamation is this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And what? Christ is coming again. And that is where our heart says, amen. That is where we hear that and say, yes, Lord. Even so, come quickly. But you might read this and go, question mark, coming again, question mark, when, where, how? This is weird, this is strange. But we need to see that there is an emphasis on this, and we should talk about this. So let me just point out a couple things. Here in Mark 13, Mark chapter 13, what we're going to study right now, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, talking about the destruction of the temple overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Hey, that temple is going to be destroyed in your lifetime. And it was. That prophecy was fulfilled. And then he says, and then he talks about his coming because the disciples in their mind assumed when the temple's destroyed, it might as well be the end of the world. And Jesus used that opportunity to now talk about his coming. So we're going to see Jesus answer a, a near prophecy and a far off prophecy. And so he's on the Mount of Olives talking about the destruction of the temple, talking about his coming, and here's what's cool to me. In Acts chapter 1, maybe remember this. Where is Jesus before he ascended into heaven? Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. The same place he talked about his coming is where he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, I'll read it to you. Uh, the angels actually appeared to the disciples, and the angels said this, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here? Or why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Amen? You know what's cool about that? He's like, hey, Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven. And just like it was a physical ascension, it was a real ascending. He's really coming back. He's really coming back. And the Mount of Olives is probably the most significant place to me. When we went to Israel, that's, that's my, by far my favorite location we went to. You're overlooking the city of Jerusalem. You're thinking about the sermon Jesus preached in Matthew 24, Mark 13. You're, you're thinking about that. You're realizing I'm on the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended into heaven. That's pretty cool. And there's a verse in Zechariah 14 that says, this is where he will return. Zechariah 14, verse 3. It says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, listen, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Uh, That has not happened yet. I don't remember that earthquake where it split the earth, you know. Mount of Olives and the river ran through, but this is going to happen. Jesus is speaking about his coming from the Mount of Olives. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, and Zechariah 14 says he will step foot in the Mount of Olives. 
So when we go to Jerusalem, we're going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm at the Mount of Olives. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. Um, but here's what I want us to see. We do need to understand what he's saying. Because so much of Mark 13 is actually talking about the destruction of the temple. And this would have been life-changing. This would have been monumental. This changed Judaism as we know it today. And sometimes the verses that are applied to the destruction of the temple, we can apply towards the second coming. I think that's where we've missed it. So I'm going to point out a couple of things in the text. So here's the kind of how we're going to walk through the text. Here's how we're going to break down the text, all right? Three kind of main ideas, honestly, in this text. The first one is this. Uh, we're going to see the end of the temple, the end of the temple, verse 1 through 13. We're going to see what it was like and what it will be like. What does that mean? It means that in verse 14 to 23, Jesus is going to give a prophecy. We call it, it has a dual fulfillment. I believe it has a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. We're going to see what it's like leading up to the destruction of the temple and what it's like leading up to his coming. And then it's going to be very clear in verse 24 on, we're going to see Jesus' return and what that means today. Cool? Sound good? Let's do this. And you can all write me emails later. It's okay. All right. Uh, Mark, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. We're looking at the first point, the end of the temple. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Read with me now. It says, Then Jesus, as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Matthew 24 is referring specifically to the temple. Do you not see this temple, this great building? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right, this is such like a, it feels like a kill buzz. It's like, Jesus, Jesus left the temple. Do you not see the temple? Look how glorious it is. He's like, oh, it's all going to burn. <laughs> You're like, what? Now that caused a lot of issues, right? Like, what is he talking about? The temple? Let me talk to you about the temple. This is known as Herod's temple. You can read about this, study this, look at this from history. Different authors write about this. Herod's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was. Not just a Christian thing. Like, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Beautiful. Glorious. A guy named King Herod, that's why it's called Herod's Temple, took the current temple. If you guys remember uh, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, if you read in the Old Testament, a guy named Zerubbabel and Ezra started rebuilding the temple. It was okay. It was like they rebuilt the temple, but Herod put a lot of time and money and energy into it. He started building in 19 BC before Christ was even born, and the temple was technically finished around 63 AD. About 80 years, 80 years to build this temple. Like we think it takes long for streets and stuff to be fixed here. 80 years to build the temple, all right? A lot of time and money and energy was put into this. So it's called Herod's Temple just historically because Herod put a lot of into it. And then his kids took over and put a lot into it. And this temple was glorious. You can read a guy named Josephus who's not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian who understands the Roman culture. And he writes about this and says there was just, it was gold plated on the outside. The roof was gold plated. The stones were like this, like marble, but also limestone, very bright, very white. He said from the distance, you would see the temple miles away, and it looked like almost there's just snow on it. It was just shining and glorious and beautiful. The stones could be as far as 50 feet long, 25 feet high, like one stone. That people today say modern machinery couldn't even move these stones. Over a million pounds. I mean, there's, a, there's descriptions of this temple that is crazy glorious, crazy beautiful. I mean, imagine the disciples, and this is around probably 32 AD, Jesus walking the disciples. So it's probably, you know, 40 plus years, 50 years in the building of this temple. It's probably pretty glorious at that point in time. Like, look at this, Jesus. This is unbelievable. He goes, yeah, it's all going to burn. <laughs> yeah, I see all these temples of the stones. It's all, and in their mind, like, what are you talking about? Like, that was blasphemy, by the way. If you guys remember, there's different times where people were accused of blasphemy of the temple, and they could literally be put in prison or even killed. The temple was something they bragged about. They would swear by the temple, not by God. Like, well, I swear by the temple this will happen. Like, they, there's a huge emphasis on the temple, the temple, the temple. And Jesus goes, it's, it's going to burn. 
So let me explain, and we'll talk more about this. So what happened? This was fulfilled in the disciples' lifetime. In 70 AD, a guy named Titus, a Roman general, came into Jerusalem, and one of his soldiers, we know, basically, the Jews flooded the temple for safety. They won't tear down the temple. They weren't, they weren't willing. They didn't want to tear down the temple. The Romans didn't, according to Josephus. This wasn't their plan. But something happened where eventually a fire started, and the gold in the temple began to melt, and it seeps into all the cracks of the temple, and eventually, it's like, hey, the temple's ruined. Tear aside, tear apart the stones. Tear the stones off each other one by one and collect the gold. And what Jesus said in Mark 13, he goes, do you not see that not one stone will be left upon another? It was literally fulfilled. The gold melted into the cracks of the stones. It's like, we, we get the gold. It's already ruined anyways. This happened in 70 AD. This is history, okay? This is fulfilled in their time, in their lifetime. A couple side notes, a couple of things I want to point out. Um, and this is almost more spiritual. Why, why did the temple need to be destroyed? Why was it destroyed? Uh, here's the idea. I think, honestly, one, the, the temple was corrupted. As beautiful as it was, Jesus, because that's a barren fig tree. Looks like a lot of life, but it's barren. I believe at that point in time, it was corrupted. Also, we see that there's no need. After Jesus died and rose again, there's no need for a temple. Jesus is the temple. We are the, the bod our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. And there's no need for sacrifices or a priesthood. Jesus was that and is that. And so I think there's other reasons you could say around, regarding around this idea that why is it destroyed? And I think, again, we don't need, but that's changed history as we know, in modern day Judaism as we know it. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the temple's destroyed. Now imagine Jesus says this and they're going, what is he saying? The temple, our temple being destroyed? And verse three is when they come to Jesus. So Jesus talked to us about this. So let's read now. Uh, verse three. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, and I love Mark's the only person who tells us who it was, Peter, James, John, Andrew, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Matthew's version, Luke's version, tell us, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming? That was the question, according to Matthew and Luke as well. Jesus answering them began to say, listen, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and he will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These things are the beginning, the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues, and you'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you, do not worry beforehand or, or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his, son, his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures the end shall be saved. Verse 1 through 13, the end of the temple. Jesus is telling them, here's what it'll be like leading up to the destruction of the temple. So I want to be really clear with that. And he gives some specifics. He goes, here's what it will be like leading up to the, the destruction of the temple. And we, can, and we just read that list. But I think sometimes we can maybe read that and not understand, for like, when does this apply? Has this happened? Is this going to happen? I think it's very clear. When will the temple be destroyed? And Jesus goes, here's how it'll be destroyed, and this is what it'll look like. And so let's reread just a couple of the lists, the details. Uh, he talks about how many will come in his name. And we saw that in the era of the disciples. There was false prophets. There were false antichrist figures and types, people who said uh, I, they're coming in the name of Jesus. John actually wrote about this in 1 John 2.18. John writes what? Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the, that the antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. 
The idea of antichrist just means against or in place of Christ. The word anti is not just against Jesus, it's I'm in place of Jesus. I want to take the place of Jesus. John says, hey, you've already seen this in our generation. Many have come in his name. You know, this idea of wars and rumors of wars, it's the Roman Empire, it's filled with wars. This idea of earthquakes in their day and age. In AD 62, a very big earthquake in Pompeii. That, not, the, that, not that earthquake, that was in 70, 79 AD, but a very big earthquake that leveled part of the city. Also in 61 AD, a big earthquake that actually leveled Laodicea and leveled Colossae, like cities in the Bible that we talk about. We see these things beginning to happen. We see the wars and rumors of wars. We saw the earthquakes. Uh, next, you could say even, he says, hey, you'll be delivered up to councils in the synagogues. When you guys read the book of Acts, here's what I'm trying to point out. When you read the book of Acts, this was fulfilled. You see in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 21, constantly the disciples being brought to leadership, synagogues, being beaten. Don't tell anyone about Jesus. We'll beat you. We'll take your life. And Peter in Acts 4 and Acts 5 gives a phenomenal gospel presentation of who Jesus is. And guess what? He did that as Jesus described. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't premeditate what he was going to say. He just spoke. I mean, we see these things happening like over and over again. Uh, Moving on, he says they'll deliver you up to council. He says the gospel must be preached to all the world. You go, ha, Josiah, the gospel must be preached to all the world. Has that happened yet? According to Paul in Colossians 1, 6, that happened. Here's the idea of that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. He says the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world. We believe this is probably more of like a saying, like the gospel must go to all parts of the globe. And Paul's like, hey, it's come to you. It's also come to the rest of the world. There, there's so many more verses that we could break down. Brother will betray brother. Father, children, children, parents. They'll give him up. Can I tell you, in this first century, how often did it happen where uh, if you didn't, as a Christian, didn't say Jesus is, or Caesar is Lord, they'd say, okay, say, say Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. Okay, we're going to feed you the lions. We're going to throw you in the Colosseum. We're going to kill you. We're going to stone you. We're going to do whatever. I mean, this was constantly happening. And when it says in verse 13, I know a controversial verse to many, it's like, those who endure to the end shall be saved. Probably not speaking so much of salvation itself as much as just like, hey, if you make it to the end, you'll be alive. And even if it is that, we know that enduring is not because you, uh, enduring to the end is not because you, 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 you want to be saved, but you are saved. So here's, here's the big idea. Verse 1 through 13, I believe Jesus is being really clear. The temple is going to be destroyed. Here's what it'll be like when the temple is destroyed. Now here's why I'm saying all this. We as Gentiles in 2018 don't think this is a big deal. We're not like, wow, this is so important for us. Can we just understand that Judaism and the temple as they know it was forever changed? Please think about this. Today, there is no temple, no priests, no sacrifices. You know what? Modern day, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, instead of a temple, they have synagogues. Instead of priests, they have rabbis. Instead of sacrifices, they try to do social justice. But they cannot carry out Judaism as they know it. Why? There is no temple. Understand Jesus saying this. The temple be destroyed would be earth-shattering to the disciples and any other Jews who hear this. Do you know what you're saying? We can't practice what God told us to do. There's no sacrifices, that's right, because I'm the last sacrifice. There's no priesthood, that's right, I'm the priest. Like, Jesus is basically describing this, saying, look at, do you see, this is going to be destroyed, and this would have shattered their world. And this is why, listen, this is a prophecy that was fulfilled in their lifetime, that within 40 years, less than 40 years go by, and they're seeing these things happen. And Jesus is, is talking in this way, and this would have just radically changed their perspective in their world. One guy, a guy named, it doesn't matter, a commentator said this. Listen to this. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which prompted the disciples to inquire about the timing of these things. Apparently, listen, apparently they associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. 
In reply, Jesus skillfully wove together into a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives, the near event, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the far event, the coming of the Son of Man, the clouds with power and glory. The former local event was a forerunner of the latter universal events. In this way, Jesus followed the present of Old Testament prophets by preceding a far future event in terms of a near future event whose fulfillment was at least some of his hearers would see. So Jesus is giving this prophecy, and they're, they're thinking, you're saying the temple is going to be destroyed? He goes, yes. And here's what I want to point out. If you read this passage, and you can do study on your own, Jesus says, when will these things, these things, these things refer to their lifetime? It seems that those days refer to the future. In those days. It seems to refer to maybe something more far off. So that first point is this. Jesus is describing the end of the temple. Now, verse 14 through 23 is where it gets really tricky. It seems that Jesus is also still describing the end of the temple, but also his coming. So number two is this, what it was like and what it will be like. We would call this a dual prophecy, a dual fulfillment prophecy, short-term meaning, long-term meaning. Let's read verse 14. Are you guys with me so far? Yeah? Okay. Because this is a little tricky passage. Verse 14. Let's keep reading. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, what is that? We'll talk about it. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. And you're like, I don't understand. It's okay. We'll try. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those, I'm sorry, this is my wife, who are pregnant. Um, <laughs> and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Don't, I don't think it applies to you, babe, don't worry. Um, <laughs> verse 18, and pray that your flight may be in winter. For in those days, for in those days there will be tribulation such as not has been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, for, uh, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And I believe that's referring to the Jewish people at that time. Uh, verse 23, but take heed. See, I have told you all these things beforehand. Okay, so when I say what it was like and what it will be like, we, most people would describe this as this is a prophecy that had short-term fulfillment and far, like far away off, this would be fulfilled again as well. So let me explain this. Can I give you a little bit of history, right? A little bit of history. This is fun, right? Like I did not expect this today. Hey, if this is your first week, please come back next week. Um, let me give you a little bit of history. In, in the book of Daniel, it talks about the abomination of desolation. What is that? When did that happen? Jesus quotes it here, the abomination of desolation. It's a verse found in it three times in the book of Daniel. Here's one of them. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, it says this, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. What is this prophecy saying and talking about? Let me explain something really quick. The temple was destroyed when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem. Ezra, Zerubbabel, start to rebuild the temple. The temple's rebuilt. During the silent years, during the, when the last book of the Bible was written, the, the first gospel, there's 400 years of silence. During that time, a lot of history took place. There's something known, there's some a leader, a Syrian king leader. His name was Antichius Epiphanes, and you can read about him in history. Antichius Epiphanes is a Syrian king who goes into Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. He kills a pig. That's not kosher. That's pagan. It's not good. He kills a pig, smears its blood everywhere, and he offers a sacrifice to Zeus and establishes Zeus in the temple. It is believed that in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, the abomination of desolation, that took place that moment. The verse we read about him stopping burnt offerings and establishing something up to a pagan god or idolatrous god, we believe that that was fulfilled. 
So here's what's interesting. And by the way, that, that is really interesting if you read about it. Maybe you've read history a little bit, and during that time, it, it caused some brothers, the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt, to gather together and say, no, we want our temple back. We're going to fight back. They actually fought back, regained like, peace and political rule in Jerusalem for about 100 years. That's history. We believe Daniel 11.32 was fulfilled then. But here's what's interesting. Jesus is bringing up Daniel 11.32 again. He's saying you're going to see this happen again. And here's why I say it's dual fulfillment. It's also going to be fulfilled short-term and long-term. Here's the idea. In 70 AD, when Titus and the Roman army came into Jerusalem, they took over the temple. They offered sacrifices to their gods. They did it all over again. Jesus saying, when you see these things happening, when you see the Romans coming in, when you see the, pe- when you see the city being taken back, he goes, don't even go back into the house. Just flee, run, run from the mountains. If you're pregnant, if you're nursing, flee, run, get out. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We, we make sure that the rivers aren't flooded. That's why it's like better for its, win- its winter. He's saying, just get out of there, go. Here's what's really interesting. Historically, around 66 AD, Christians actually saw this happening when the Romans came in and they fled. Many of the Christians remembered this. Remember what Jesus talks about? And fled. Very cool, very interesting. Many didn't, many tried to fight. Jesus basically said, don't fight at this moment. Run, flee. They're going to take over the temple, offer sacrifices, destroy the temple. So that's a short-term near fulfillment of that prophecy. But here's what's interesting. I do personally believe this has a long-term fulfillment, meaning this also hasn't happened. It happened, but it will happen. It happened, but it will happen. And this is what is interesting to me, because there's some verses in the Bible that you go, did that happen? Has that been fulfilled yet? For example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 talks about the Antichrist and what he will do. And here's the idea. We'll read it up here. When the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. See, this guy's going to go to the temple and say, I'm God. Worship me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't think that happened in 70 AD. I would say that there are many who do. And I respect that. They believe this was already fulfilled. That's why I looked at verse 14 through 23 as what it was like and what it will be like. It was fulfilled short-term, but it will f- be fulfilled long-term. That we're s- there, this hasn't happened yet. A guy named Daniel Aiken said it this way, and please take a picture, remember this, write this down. It's a good quote. He said, The abomination that causes desolation alludes to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but is not exhausted by it. The abomination is a mysterious double reference. A historical medium that anticipates an ultimate fulfillment in the advent of the Antichrist in the final tribulation before the return of the Son of Man. His point is, we don't see 2 Thessalonians 2 happening yet. So that still will be an event. Let me just point this out, we'll move on. I know it's a lot of history, but here's what I want to point out. We might argue and say, but there is no temple. How can this happen if there is no temple? That should be a question, but there's no temple. Great question. Because what God did in 1948 was incredible. Jews who were dis- dis- dispersed. I mean, the diaspora, 2,000 years ago, Jews went all over the world. 1948, God's like, you get a nation again. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Prophecies being fulfilled. Unbelievable that they haven't have a nation again. We don't see the Philistines around anymore. The Philistines are like, I want Philistine land. Like, we don't see that. Like, and you think about all the different people groups in the Bible, the fact that the Jews have been scattered for 2,000 years and, and retained their culture and come back into land is incredible. And there's the nation state of Israel, right? There is no temple. It's Muslim-owned, that territory where the temple was. As you guys know, that's causing a lot of the conflicts currently, obviously, between you know, the Muslims and between the Jews. There's a group of people that are trying to rebuild the temple. It's called the Temple Institute. We've been to the Temple Institute. It's pretty crazy. You can re- they're trying to remake everything that was in the original temple. You'll see the high priest garments with the 12 jewels. You'll see the brass trumpets. I mean, you'll see everything except for the Ark of the Covenant. Everything else. It's, it's, it's incredible what they're trying to do. So there are people who are trying to rebuild the temple. Here's the thing. I'm not like rooting for that to happen. We don't need a temple. It's not for us. 
It's not commanded by God. To rebu- that, but I do see that that is an effort, a movement trying to take place, and it seems as if, as if 2 Thessalonians 2 could be fulfilled in the future. I know that's a lot. And we'll go to the Temple Institute one day if you want to go with us in 2020. It's going to be really cool. But, but here's what I'm trying to point out, that there seems to be this, like, movement to do this again. Now, here's the thing. I believe this was fulfilled in 70 AD. For me, there's certain elements of missing that I still see being far off. And that's where I think a lot of divide comes. I'm very open-handed with this. I would agree with most people and say, yes, it seems to be fulfilled in 70 AD. Yes, it also seems to be one day it will be fulfilled. It seems to be a dual fulfillment prophecy. Verse 24 now gets really clear talking about Jesus' return. And this is the most important. Because I'm not trying to create a bunch of like information, weird Christians who get hung up at the end times. I want to create a longing for Jesus. And this is what we got to talk about, verse 24. Number three, the third point, Jesus' return and what that means today. Verse 24 is pretty clear. In those days, you notice that? In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away to all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will, will by no means take place. Verse 24 seems to be a key transition from talking about the destruction of the temple. Now Jesus is saying, let me talk about my coming and what it will be like. So it's like this key transition from these things that will happen in this day to in those days, referring to his coming, here's what it'll be like. Now maybe you've read Matthew or Mark chapter 13, verse 24. This is quoted in a lot of movies. This is usually quoted in a lot of like serial killer psychopath movies. Like, when the Son of Man comes, the earth will be darkened. The stars will fall from heaven. You know, it's like always like this creepy guy. You're like, what is he doing? And this is, again, this is probably given like a bad rap towards the idea of Jesus. Like, it, I'll be honest, it's sad to me. The second coming of Jesus is mocked in so many ways. In movies, by comedians, and TV shows, it's just mocked, it's belittled. It's something that people put down. To try to put down, I think, a big element of our faith, saying Jesus will come again, the earth is his, he's going to come back and claim it. And this is, a big, this is a big element for us, remember? Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. This earth is his. He redeemed it. He will redeem it. He will come back. He'll come back with great power and glory. And I don't want to downplay this by any means. And we should long for this. We should look forward to this. And Jesus talks about this fig tree. And here's the idea of a fig tree. Most trees in Israel were evergreen except for fig trees. There are trees that had seasons. And they would have, we talked about this a few weeks ago, they'd have leaves and then eventually fruit. Jesus is like, when you see these signs, when you see these leaves, know that just around the corner is this, the coming of Jesus. And this is referring to his second coming. And for us, I hear this, and, and I want to point this out. Because why does he tell us this? What's the point of this? What if, if we're not here, if we're here, why does he even tell us this to begin with? Here's the main thought I want to share. Jesus reveals the future to transform our present. Jesus tells us future things to say, I want you to change how you live today. And that's key. I'm telling you these things to transform your day-to-day life. There are 19, like I said, 19 imperatives, commands, and how to live, and how to watch, how to be aware, how to, to just preach the gospel. There's 19 commands. And that is important for us to at least hear those, to respond to those. I know there are people who get hung up. What does it mean in this generation? I believe it's the generation he's referring to that will see the, the, the stars fall and the moon dark, th- that kind of hyperbolic language, that kind of, you know, poetic type of language, because that generation will by no means pass away. I'm sharing this because there should, he's just basically trying to create a longing for his coming. 
And the key, what I want to focus on and we'll end on, we're going to read verse 32, verse uh, 32 on. And we're going to talk about why this matters today. Look at verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Can, can someone say no one knows? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, watch and pray. Okay, we should probably do that. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going into a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowning of the rooster, in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And I, what I say to you, I say to you all, watch. We need to take away the most important thing. What is he saying to us all? Watch. Watch. Pray. Be alert. Be ready. I'm not gonna, it's not about the details of the ins and outs of when and the methods and how does this work. What about this verse? The main command to all of us, he says to us all, watch. Watch. Be ready. Be alert. He gives the example of a servant over a house. He said the master left. The doorkeeper just needs to be ready for his coming. And here's the thing for us. And here's what I want to talk about because this is what, honestly, this is what has for me, caused me to stop and not look at this as just like some sort of teaching. The dominant hope of the New Testament is the second coming of Jesus. And please hear this. When you read the epistles, when you read Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, there's so many references to the coming of Jesus, and it's with this great expectation and hope, and the dominant hope of the New Testament is the second coming of Jesus. And here's my question. As a church, as a church today, we long to be a biblical church. We long to be a church that Jesus wants us to be, to be, to emphasize and talk about what he talks about, emphasizes. And here's what I see. There's this hope of the second coming of Jesus throughout the scriptures, and I have to ask myself, is there this hope in my life? And is there this hope in your life? And please, like, let's not move on from this thought. Do you guys have this great hope and expectation for just the coming of Jesus? I mean, you, you can't read any epistle without some sort of reference some sort of longing. You know, I love Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He talks about the grace of God that brings salvation as appeared to all men, teaching us to deny in godliness that we may live righteously, soberly, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that something that we have? Are we looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior? Guys, when you think about the idea of Jesus coming, are you like, yes, Lord, come? You're like, no, no, no. I still want to do my own thing. Like, what does that do to our hearts? I still want to experience this. Really? Will that experience be better than Jesus King and rule and reign on earth? As is, will that be better than that? Regardless of your view, regardless of my view, <laughs> I see throughout the scriptures this idea of longing for and looking for and watching and being alert and don't sleep and don't say, what does Jesus say in one of the parables? Do not say in your heart, my master delays is coming. Do not say that. Do not say you can't come back. He said, like, don't do that. He gives <laughs> stories and illustration after illustration. It's not a really question of when or how, but it's just, do I long for the second coming of Jesus? Do I long for his kingdom to be here? And guys, for us to be a biblical church, we have to be a church that longs for the coming of Jesus. Amen? We have to be. We, we, we can't be a church that wants to put this off or not talk about it or not think about it. Then we're not a biblical church. Like, we have to long for this. There, there is that great expectancy. And I just want to leave a couple thoughts with, with all of us because I know in this room there's going to be different views. You're going to want to study this more, look at this more. We're gonna, you're going to go into some really bad websites with some really bad clip art and like, oh, this weird video. If I type in this date, it'll make this like a destruction day. Like, it's ridiculous. There's craziness out there. And it's just, it does something that's maybe not so healthy. And what I want to end with, what is healthy? And here's, here's the fourth. Can I say this? There are four things. Four things. 
Every follower of Jesus, really, regardless of time and era and denomination that everyone believes. Can I put those four things? Number one is this. Jesus is coming back. Number two, there will be the resurrection. Number three, there will be a judgment day. Number four, there will be a new creation. Every Christian believes this. Every denomination believes this. And this is something we should talk about more. Hey, Jesus is coming back. Amen. Yes. Hey, guess what? Um, there will be a physical bodily resurrection one day. Yes. That's not, dis- that's not like disputed. There will be a judgment one day. John 5, throughout the whole New Testament, Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead. There will be a judgment day when he comes. And number four, he'll make all things right. He'll make it a new creation, a recreation. And this is something all of us can agree upon. This is something where I can say to my friends who maybe have a different view and that's okay and I love them, I can say, listen, this is what we agree upon. And this is what we should be longing for and talking about. And so here's the idea. Are we longing for the second coming? Are you, are you talking about the resurrection day, new body? You know, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, the judgment day. Are you ready to stand before Jesus? Are we, are we excited? Are we talking about the idea of new creation and anticipating the new creation and trying to join Jesus in his work of making all things new on earth as is in heaven? Like, these are the things we should be caring about. These are the things we should be talking about. And my hope for us is we would become a church that is dominated by the same hope that's in the whole New Testament and that is the longing to be with Jesus. Where John writes in 1 John 3, when we see him, we'll be like him. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you have the hope of seeing Jesus? What will it do? It will change how you live. It will change how you interact with people, how you love, how you serve. It will give us a a heart to be expectant, a heart that is ready and looking and waiting for the coming of Jesus. And if there's anything, guys, and I can't do this, I can't force this in you, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus spoke here and does this. Guys, be alert. That's all I can say. Be alert. Watch. Pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. This is what Jesus leaves us with. Look for me. Be ready for me. Care about this. Long for this. The blessed hope, the glorious appearing. This should be something we're praying for, longing for. Would you guys agree? Amen? I love in the book of Revelation, the last verse written, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And what is John's response? Even so, Lord, come quickly. (laughs) Hey, I'm coming fast. Speed it up. And that to me is that blessed hope. I just want to beat Jesus. I just want you. How this plays out, when this plays out, the details around that, Jesus I am told to be ready for the imminent return of Christ, the any moment return of Christ. And what that will look like, there's some open-handed conversations in that, and we can talk through that. But I'm told to be looking for the, the imminent return of Christ. Be alert, be ready, watch, pray, pray, seek for God's kingdom to come on earth as is in heaven. Amen? Here's what we're going to do right now because it's so fitting, and please do not get distracted by, do not move, do not miss this. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about remembering Jesus' death and resurrection, he ties it, please listen, he ties Jesus' death and resurrection to his coming. And just listen to this verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. He says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For the past 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering and taking the cup and taking the bread and saying, Jesus, you died, you gave your body, you gave your life for us so we could live, and we're going to do this until we're with you in heaven. And that's what we're doing. We take communion as a time to remember what Jesus did for us and remember how we will one day be reunited with him. And so listen, here's what we're going to do. We are going to pass out communion in just a second. And please, if this is something you don't believe, like, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't want, when the communion tray comes, just let it pass. If you believe in Jesus, we take this to remember and celebrate. This is not some sad, depressing thing. We go, Jesus, because you died, we live. 
Because you gave your body as a living sacrifice, I can now give my body back to you. Because your blood was shed, my sins are forgiven. And we take communion to celebrate and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to do this until Jesus returns. Amen? So we're going to pass out communion in just a second. I'm going to ask when you get that bread, when you get that cup, that you just hold on to it for a second, that you pray over it. When you are ready in your seat, just take it. I'm going to be down there with you guys taking it. But we're going to pass it out. I'm going to just say, please pray over it and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the, de- your, the death you, you gave. Thank you for the, the life you gave. Thank you for your blood being spilled so I can live. Just pray over it. Thank Jesus. And then after that, we'll just pray and we'll have a couple of quick thoughts and we'll let you guys go. All right? Let me pray for you guys and then we're going to pass out communion. Father, I just, um, I ask that what was said today, what was shared, my heart is not to, to fit in a certain agenda as much as declare what your word says. And Jesus, it is incredible. It is incredible how you warned people for the short-term destruction of Jerusalem. It's incredible that Christians heard this and some fleed and, and their lives were spared because of this. And it's incredible that you also talked to us about your coming. And Jesus, we say, come quickly. Jesus, we want to be the servant who's ready and looking and alert and watching and praying. And so, God, let us not miss your heart in this. God, I just ask that we not get hung up on some of the specifics or details and miss your heart ultimately, that we'd be a people that are watching and praying and looking for you and longing for this blessed hope. Jesus, we want to be a church that is dominated by the hope and the promise of your coming. So we look to you. Jesus, you have died, you have risen, and you're coming again. And we will say this until we're with you. So we thank you and we praise you in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Guys, feel free to come forward and pass out communion.